everyone. Thanks for downloading our second podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about startup culture and we'll be sharing some incredible stories from some of the most respected entrepreneurs out there. Hope you enjoy it. So this week, Jonathan, we're, uh, we're looking at the theme of startups and we've got two fairly recent books. I think they both came out late last year um, by superstar investors. So I had a look at Peter Thiel's um, book, Zero to One, and you had a look at Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things, right? I did, yes. Yeah, so we can see what we can learn about um, startup culture and uh, what perhaps the winning formula is for, uh, for creating a great startup. So I think you're, um, you're going to go first and, and give us a little bit of insight onto Ben Horowitz's uh, life and his, um, his lessons in his book. Yep, so, I am. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to try and go through this fairly quickly because I think that I've, I've got a lot to cover. Um, well, you, you're pretty excited about this book. Yeah, so I, <laughs> the, the more I kind of read it and kind of go back over my notes, the more I sort of find new stuff. I'm, kind of when I first read through it, I thought the first half was really good and then it started to get a bit kind of long-winded um, and it seemed re- less relevant to me because a lot of it is focused on CEO, CEO stuff and sort of executive level. Um, but the more I kind of read up on the notes, the more I think, wow, there's some really good stuff in here. So <clears throat> just to recap on the kind of a general overview. Um, so it was released in March last year, so pretty new book. Um, and the book is is about all the hard stuff. It's the stuff that kind of most self-help help books kind of avoid in a way. And I think the reason they do that is because there's no kind of secret, you know, there's no, no real formula to, to solving a lot of the things that he discusses. Um, so there's no real sort of easy solution. And so what he tries to do is, you know, he doesn't offer specific solutions himself, but because of the experience he's had in, you know, startups and companies he's worked at, he's in just such a great position to offer, you know, some really good bits of advice. Um, yeah, and, so and just a, Ben Horowitz has been around for a while, hasn't he? He's, um, he's one of the sort of uh, the early 90s guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, he's, I think he's nearly 50 now, I guess. And he, he kind of, I guess, compared to a lot of the startup guys, he came to the came to the show a little bit late really because you know a lot of people were doing it when they're sort of 19 20 and he he i think he started doing it when he's sort of early 30s um so it's interesting that he was a little bit older a little bit maturer um i don't know whether that impacted how he sort of you know whether that made enabled him to achieve a little bit more um but just on him in general i mean he was raised in berkeley in california um clearly a very academic individual um and he also, he kind of split when he was at college. He also did a bit of football, and I think that was purely out, more sort of out of curiosity rather than um, something that he had a real desire to do. So is that, and, is that American football? Or? Yeah, so American football, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> there's a really funny kind of initial confrontation he has with his, his uh, first football coach, um, a guy called Coach Mendoza, which is, to me just sounds like an absolute classic college football coach um, and basically <clears throat> at the uh, the first football training session um, coach Mendoza came out with with the following sort of speech if you like which goes a little bit something like some of you guys will come out here and you just won't be serious you'll get here and start shooting the shit bullshitting not doing shit and just want to look good in your football shirt if you do that then you know what turn your shit in when and then he goes on to give some other examples like Come to late to practice, turn your shit in. Don't want to hit, turn your shit in. Call me Chico, turn your shit in. Um, and Ben came away from this and he was like, he was just blown away because 
it was just like the most compelling and sort of hilarious speech all in one go. Um, and the thing is, is that there's actually kind of a lesson in that in terms of leadership. And he kind of gives a, a sort of quote from Colin Powell, the sort of previous Secretary of State, who said that leadership is sometimes just getting someone to follow you, even if, it, even if it's purely out of curiosity. Um, and, you know, that quote by Coach Mendoza is, is a classic example. I mean, who's not going to follow that guy? It's, it's so, you know, compelling of what he's sort of saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's that sort of first lesson in leadership. So it's pretty interesting. So very academic. He, he then graduated uh, from college with a computer science degree. And his first sort of proper job was at a place called Silicon Graphics. Um, and from what I understand, they were kind of the sort of, you know, really exciting Silicon Valley company, a lot of really smart people there. They were doing some really cool stuff like working on the animations for films like Terminator 2. And I think, I'm not 100% sure what his exact role was, but he was, you know, very technical there um, and obviously gained a lot of experience. Um, but I think he was quite quick to realise that he wanted to get involved in, in some of the startups. Um, and so he made a, a fairly quick jump across to a company called NetLabs, um, and they were a fresh startup. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that he did this at a time when he already had three kids. Um, and I think he didn't. I think he was having kind of a tough time supporting that because he had jumped into this startup, and obviously he was trying to support his family financially. But working in a startup is long hours. You know, not necessarily guaranteed. Um, you know, pay. I guess it was probably you know things that were pretty volatile. Um, so. After a lot of debating, he actually just dropped out of the startup scene and he got a stable job with Lotus Development. Um, and it's kind of lucky in a way because this is when things really started to happen for him. Um, because at this point is when he, he came across Mosaic, the first sort of UI for, for the internet. And more importantly, he came across a company called Netscape. And the interesting thing is is that um, Netscape is, is co-founded by a guy called Mark Andreessen, um, who's a big part of this book. Um, He's the now sort of partner of, of Andreas and Horowitz venture capitalist firm. And he knew straight away, look, as soon as he found out about Netscape, he just knew that this was the future and he wanted to get involved. You know, Netscape was kind of, a, it was a real historic startup. And, um, and one of the, the most spectacular things was their IPO in, I think it was in 1995. They went public um, and they initially offered shares for sort of $14. Then it, at the last minute, it was doubled to $28. And then at the end of the first day, they closed at $58 a share, which valued the company at $3 billion. Um, <laughs> for a web browser, wow. <laughs> which is crazy, because if you think, I mean, if you think what Netscape essentially was, was kind of, you know, what most people know it as was a web browser. Um, <clears throat> and it's pretty, I mean, it, it kind of shook the world, really. And it, it I think... When I think about it like that, a lot of people must have thought, wow, that's a really inflated price, uh, even, you know, in this kind of economy. And so I'd have thought some people, the alarm bells were ringing for some people already. I mean, this is 1995 and you've got a company that kind of come out of nowhere. It's been founded by a 22-year-old guy, um, Andreas, and and suddenly it's worth $3 billion. Um, Yeah, and I remember... um 
back in 1999 when I was programming, funnily enough. And um, Netscape, I hated because they implemented everything differently to Internet Explorer. So you used to have to, you know, program like now you just have div tags. So if you want to show or hide a layer or whatever, you just right, use the yeah. div tags. But back on Netscape days, you had to use the layer and the iLayer tag. And it just drove me crazy. I thought, why yeah. can't Netscape support what Microsoft supports? But, yeah. but uh, you know, standards have got a lot better now. Yeah. And I mean, they, they kind of pursued a lot of things that actually... Microsoft ended up implementing themselves because they obviously became the sort of runaway browser. Um, but they had this they had this constant battle with Microsoft. I mean, it started off with the browsers where, you know, obviously initially Netscape was kind of winning and then when Windows 95 came out, um, they, they shipped it with IE6, everyone's favorite browser built in. So they, they kind of were monopolizing the market and they were kind of taking over. So Netscape then had to diversify and they looked at going into like web servers and that looked like it might work for a while and then Microsoft came along and shipped IIS, you know, completely free part of the system. Um, so it was a constant battle and the interesting thing is that they managed to, to get a sort of foothold in the market um, competing with sort of Microsoft Exchange and they released a product called NetSuite which was basically like a back office type system. Um, and it, it generated, I think they, they turned it from nothing into sort of $400 million a year um, revenue stream. Um, and then eventually they, they sold out to AOL for $4.2 billion, um, which was in 1998. So very much at the top of the, the sort of uh, dot-com boom and, and just a really exciting time, I'd imagine. Hmm. So that's kind of the first part of the story. So that, that ended, um, and then he... Obviously, it built up a pretty good relationship with with Mark Andreessen and a few other guys, and so it was like, what, you know, what what are these? What are they going to do next? Um, and this is when they decided. Obviously, they wanted to go into their own startup, so they began a, a company called LoudCloud, um, which was a cloud services business. Um, which again is interesting because you know this this whole kind of idea of the cloud is is something that's only really been around, or certainly to to our, my knowledge. You know, more recently, you know, if you think of kind of um, the stuff that Apple have done and so on. Um, but it, they, they were kind of way ahead of the curve doing it back then. And obviously the focus that there was on sort of um, enterprise-wide. So, you know, infrastructure and application hosting for, for, for all the internet companies that were kind of coming up out of nowhere. Um, and things, you know, started quite well because Andreessen um, obviously knew a huge number of investors from his Netscape days. So they were able to raise some funds initially. Um, and they started the company in 1999. So it was the kind of absolute peak of the of the dot-com boom. Um, but then pretty much overnight, as, as, you know, most people who in technology are aware of, you had this just, everything just fell off, you know. Um, and, you know, everything just went bust companies were literally you know losing billions and billions of dollars off their market value um at the drop of a hat and to give an indication of of this kind of boom and bust in i think in the year 2000 there were 221 ipos and then in 2001 how many do you think there were cool i don't know um 90 no less than that 19 Oh, wow, that's a big difference, yeah. And I think that, you know, that along with, there's, there's some good charts out there to show, like, the, the 80% drop in value on the NASDAQ. Um, it just showed that this the whole market just, you know, dropped off the edge of the earth. I mean, it just went, it was just completely plummeted. Mm. Um, but this is where it got kind of interesting for Ben, because this is where he kind of earned all this experience he had learned already and, and put it into practice. And as the CEO, he 
still managed to fight and keep this company going. Um, there's kind of too much, I guess, to, to really cover specifically about what he did in Loud, uh, with LoudCloud. But essentially, he, you know, he managed to battle it out and, and keep the company afloat and, and avoid bankruptcy when pretty much every other company was, was just dying. You know, they were going bankrupt. Um, there's another really good quote from, I think it was his financial controller at the time, a guy called Dave Conte. And they, when they were going to um, try and raise some funding um, and go public, they had to kind of um, reset their guidance to investors because of various setbacks. And so obviously this was a big problem because it was going to immediately you know, lose a lot of faith in the company. And Dave Conte's speech, uh, sort of quote was, no matter what we say, we're going to get killed. As soon as we reset guidance, we'll probably have no credibility with investors. So we might as well take, the, take all the pain now because nobody will believe any positivity in the forecast anyway. If you're going to eat shit, don't nibble. <laughs> Which like, again, can you imagine at this time, right? This kind of, this, someone like, someone's coming out with like a statement like that. Um, you know, you, they needed people like this. It's like, we've got to get this done. We've got to get through it. It's a battle, but it's, you know, we have no choice. Um, whereas a lot of people maybe quit, maybe just dropped out and, and gave up. Um, and I think that's the, the, you know, the big thing is that Ben Horowitz and, and the team just carried on fighting, raising money when no one else could. Um, and, you know, they managed to avoid bank bankruptcy and eventually sold the business to HP for 1.6 billion. So, this is in a time when nobody was making money, you know, none of the technology businesses were making money. Um, so it's pretty impressive. Um, and th there's quite an interesting thing. Basically, he went on this three-week roadshow when he was taking the company public. And um, he said that it was so he was so manic. He literally had like a handful of hours of sleep during this three-week period. And he said that it was so, so manic that he went to one meeting wearing a different colored suit and trousers because he just it was just completely messed up so it kind of shows you what he was going through at the time but did um, presumably he made a lot of money in his in his first venture with um netscape right so why was he putting himself through all this when he was really he didn't need to i guess yeah he does talk, he talks exactly about that he says he basically said you know there wasn't necessarily a need for him to go back into this but i think it was that's where the passion lies you know that's what they wanted to do and you've got to remember that it was the peak of the market so it seemed like it was probably the right thing to do you know it seemed like it was it was a win-win scenario um you know the, the, it was kind of odds were were heavily in their favor at the time mm. so you know, as I said, the, the, there's so much here to cover. The first sort of twenty percent of this book is really inspiring stuff, and it's it's hard hitting. It's it's I don't know. I've I've not read stories like this. I was pretty amazed about the stuff that this guy has been through, um, and it's from all this experience that he then goes on to start. You know, the book then starts to become more of a providing advice and things for you to focus on um, as sort of a high level manager, leader, CEO, and so on. Um, so basically. The, the, the next part really to talk about is is what Ben learned from this and, and the sort of advice that he passes on. Um, so after this, this sort of crazy time at the, his startup, um, the first point in the book is that you know, running a company is, is a, just a constant battle. Um, and basically you go from one, one battle to the next, just trying to fight, fight, you know, fight out, put out fires and, and just keep going. Um, but the thing is, is that Everybody who wants to do something great will have to go through this. If you look at any kind of great entrepreneur, whether it's you know your Mark, uh, you know Steve Jobs to Mark Zuckerberg, they've all gone through these incredible battles, incredible struggles in order to get where they are. Um, and he basically said, "There's no 
kind of solution. There's no there's no kind of easy way out of this. But he does provide some you know, interesting advice about how you can get through it. Um, and I'll kind of go through this because there's there's some like you know bigger stuff later on. But he he talks about this idea that you know don't put it all on your own shoulders. So share as many problems as you can. And he's talking specifically about you know a sort of CEO, a, a high level leader level. And what he means by that is there's some things you can't obviously share with everybody, but there's lots of stuff that you'd be better off sharing than just trying to, you know, protect everyone thinking you're doing them a favor by not sharing it. Um, Second thing he talks about is this idea that if you play long enough, um, you might get lucky. And my interpretation... What what is that? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, what he means by that, especially in the technology industry, is that, you know, things change very, very quickly. And I think he experienced a lot of times where it seemed like there was nowhere to turn. And then the next day came along and something else cropped up. He survived just long enough. And then something else and, you know, some kind of something that wasn't possible the day before was suddenly possible. And they could, you know, survive for a little bit longer and keep keep fighting. Mm. Um, another one is don't take it personally. I think it's something you hear a lot. But people make mistakes a lot of people make really big mistakes and and kind of um putting yourself down all the time as as the leader is is just not going to help it's just as simple as that really and then the final one is a big chat it's it is a big challenge um you know it's no one said it's kind of going to be easy and and i think ben's pretty blunt and said if you you know if you thought it was going to be easy then you probably shouldn't have uh you know started a company in the first place um, so that's kind of the first piece is, is everything is, is sort of a struggle um, and then he goes into more things about um, you know what he did as, as in the position he was to, to make things better um, so one thing he talks a lot about is a recurring th- theme throughout the book is this concept of, of transparency um, and specifically he talks about telling it how it is and so a lot of CEOs out there they'll kind of sugarcoat things so they'll try and protect their employees to you know to avoid telling them uh, the bad news that might be, you know, spreading around. Um, <clears throat> and the thing is, is that if you can kind of instill this transparency within your within an organisation, you can do three things, which is you build trust, um, you share you share lots of problems, and then you build a culture which is, you know, happy to share bad news rather than to to hide it away. Um, and those three things are really powerful in, in sort of any any organisation, especially things like encouraging the sharing of bad news, which I think is semi sort of slightly counterintuitive you know i know a lot of companies i've worked in they've specifically hidden away bad news thinking that they're protecting the employees Mm. Um, and there's this sort of old saying of you know don't bring me problems without solutions and ben completely debunks that you know he thinks that that's just crazy i mean why would you hide away you know the very you know why would you hide away the problem from the very people that could potentially fix them um so this whole transparency thing is, is something that he kind of reiterates over and over again um, so, I mean, another thing he moves on to, which is really interesting, is, is basically how to fire people, you know, fire people the right way. Um, and he kind of comes up with like a checklist of, of things that you just need to be aware of when you're going really to have to fire someone. And it's interesting because I've read quite a few self-help books and a lot of management books and so on. And this isn't one of the things that you get in there because it's quite a it's a tricky subject. No one really wants to approach it. They kind of want to deal with the nice fluffy stuff where you're hiring people and you're recruiting people. But what do you do when those people are no longer good enough? Um, And he kind of, he has this list of things and it includes stuff like, you know, you've got to get your head right. Um, 
So accept that it's going to be difficult. People are going to hate you initially, especially if you've got to make, as a, as a manager, if you've got to make a lot of, of redundancies, um, people aren't going to like you. And so, but what you've got to do is you've got to kind of focus on the fact that you're doing what's right for the company, what's right for, for the future of the business and not dwell on what's, what's already happened and, and what's already failed. Um, a second thing he talks talks about is you know do things quickly um, it's a classic problem with with redundancies especially at big companies is is the rumor mill and if you don't action you know and, and fire people quickly Ben says is that you just end up with uh, you know all these rumors spreading around which creates so many more problems than than you would have had in the first place had you just dealt with it um, quick and then there's this concept of you know be clear about why you are firing someone um so sometimes it might be that they they haven't performed particularly well but but often it's because especially in the startup world it's because it's failed it's not met the targets that they needed to and so these people are no longer you know required to you know their, their services are no longer required so you need to be clear with them about why they're being fired um and then another one here which i think is really good is is training managers to do their own firing um, a lot of companies kind of will get maybe someone from a different department or someone more senior to fi- to fire employees, which seems silly to me. But if you train your manager to fire him, then it's it's adding a sort of respectable element to it. Um, and someone he talks about a lot throughout the book is a guy called Bill Campbell, um, who I think he was sort of formerly VP of marketing at Apple, and then he was CEO of Intuit for for quite a while. Um, and what he's saying is that all these things about firing people in the right way, um, this message is for, for all the people staying. So it's the people who stay who will care deeply about how you treat employees that you're firing. And I think that's a really powerful message because, you know, it's, that's really what it's all about. It's about making the people who are actually still going to be doing the job feel, still feel very comfortable and still believe that you're doing the right thing rather than doing it in a way that's disrespectful and, and um, they're going to worry that when it comes up, you know, when their time comes up, that it's going to be, you know, not a very nice experience. Yeah, I think this, um, I think this, uh, this Bill Campbell comes up in a book I read recently, uh, the How Google Works book. Um, I'm just trying to think what he, his advice was, but it was similar. And I think it was Eric Schmidt talking about how um, he had to let a lot of people go one day, and and what he ended up doing was basically taking everybody to um, the cinema or something, a big auditorium, and saying, "Look, you you are the guys that are left, and I know this is a bad situation, but." Um, you know, I need to know today. I need you to basically say, are you in or not? It's going to be a rough ride, but you're the ones that are staying. You're mm. the ones that have chosen. Yeah. And you're quite within your rights to walk away today if you don't if you don't want to see this through because it, it's going to be tough. But if not, then, and you're 100% in, then you've got a place at the table. And yeah. I think some of that advice came from Bill Campbell, actually. I'm sure he mentioned that. Um, really. And one of the big things of that book as well is is not just about firing but about hiring i think the google book that i read almost the central theme is hiring and, and one thing's uh, one thing that it says in there is that the skill of hiring the right people is the most important skill that a manager can have um and people should be trained to try and find the very best people because if you find the best people you know you will create the best company right yeah yeah, I mean, Ben goes into a whole lot of depth in terms of, of hiring people. Um, it's definitely worth definitely worth a read, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm kind of rushing through this. There, there's so much good stuff in here. So, um, so this sounds, um, just a quick question, this sounds, rather than like a advice for kind of entrepreneurs, this sounds more <coughs> like a management 
guide as opposed to like how to create a startup company yeah exactly i i think it's well it, it i think it has a heavy it's heavily focused on startups because the first 20 percent is all about his journey you know joining sort of three different startups and there's, and there's a lot of detail there um it's then obviously a lot of it is they, he, he became very you know senior and very um the ceo of, of some of those startups so he's then using that experience to provide advice to other kind of management level people um about how to deal with certain situations uh, but yeah, I think that the thing is with the book is that it's, it's, you would get a lot out of it, whoever you are, I think, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a manager, um, you know, or whether you're, you're running a big company and so on. Um, but it's, it has got quite a specific focus on, you know, CEOs, I think that would be fair to say. But, but managers as well, right? People leading teams. I mean, that kind of advice about handling people that sounds like a, a regular manager could, could yeah it does but I think he also he's talking a lot about um, CEOs training their managers so as as you are the CEO this is how you should you know make right, sure right. train your managers up to do certain things he d I think it covers both but he is specifically talking about CEOs throughout most of the book mm. um, so would, would you recommend this book to everyone or just to specific people uh, I would recommend it to anyone who's kind of passionate about business and about careers i think that there would be a piece to take out of it for for, for all those people mm, okay. um but anyway hang on let me let me just cram a few more things in there's there. more there's a lot more yeah um so a couple of things i just want to, to gloss over because i think they're worth mentioning one is this there's something that i know we've talked about before but later on in his book he, he comes up with this idea of something called management debt um and i think this is such a cool cool concept um and it's not something i've heard of before basically it's an adaptation of um something called technical debt which again i've i've kind of i'm aware of what it means but not necessarily come across the term and basically what it means is from a technical perspective it means kind of writing quick and dirty code in order to solve a problem for the short term yeah i know all about that yeah and then knowing full well that the design of that the way it's been designed will significantly impact you in a negative way in the future and so taking that technical debt and turning it into what Ben calls management debt is very similar in that it, it's making, you know, short-sighted decisions for, you know, maybe a short-term gain, but at the expense of, you know, a large cost of the company in, in the future. And he gives a couple of really good examples of this. Um, I'm going to probably miss out one of them just because of time, but one is that he calls two in the box. Um, and I think this is something that a manager will, a lot of managers will come across before. And it's that classic scenario where you've got one position available, but you've got two outstanding employees that you'd like to put into that job. So you take the kind of logical decision that seems right, which is that you turn that job into a two-man job and you know everybody's happy, you get to keep the employees, and you, you kind of think that you're, there's some short-term benefits from, you know, they cover each other's, any, any gaps, any skill gaps that they might be missing. Um, and, you know, you've got two people in one, one job, so surely you would get a little bit more out of it. The kind of detrimental effects are not so obvious in that you then overcomplicate the process. You've now got, you know, a team where they have to get sign-off from two different people. You've now got a situation where if there's meetings, you've got to include, you know, do you include both the people? Do you just need one? And then you've got bigger problems like who's actually accountable? You know, is it one of the, whose fault is it if things, don't, you know, if they don't meet their targets? And so the hidden the hidden problems are actually quite severe and, and they only get worse as time goes on. I think that's a, it's a really interesting point, but it's also a tricky one because if you look at um, 
Jim Collins' advice in Good to Great, for example, you know, he says one of the core themes of that book is getting the right people on the bus. So mm-hmm. sometimes don't even worry about what the particular role is. If you found a great person, just get them on the team. And, you know, strategy comes later, basically. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of at odds a little bit with what, what you're saying there. And it's very tricky to get the right balance. So I get what you're saying. Like, don't hire, you know, definitely the accountability thing is a problem. You end up with two people doing the same sort of thing and well, who's accountable for what. But but also see Jim Collins's point of view, you know, try and hire the best people you can and not mm. worry too much. And if two of them come up, take them. You know, you'll find a yeah, way. but and I think the thing that Ben, you know, is emphasising here is that there really is no easy answer. You know, he's not providing a really specific um, solution to all this. It's just that you, you know, you've got to be aware of this. And and but what he does kind of allude to is that the really good managers, the really good CEOs, they make the hard decisions today. You know, to in order to make sure that you know tomorrow is is heading towards the vision of the of the company. Um, so it's it's. You know, it's it's the hard decisions, the ones that you know nobody wants to make. Yeah. Um, okay. One final thing, and then I'll do a little conclusion, and then you can go, <laughs> you can move on to yours, because I've kind of fired through lots of stuff. Um, there's another great part of this book where he talks about the attributes of a great leader. Um, he matches each one up with you know a pretty well-known figurehead. So the ability to articulate the vision, he matches that up with none other than Steve Jobs. And basically, this attribute is you know and, and it's perfect for some you know matches steve jobs down to the ground because you know how many people would have been able to do what he did at apple when he returned you know that the ability to articulate is just a huge thing in that particular scenario the second one the right kind of ambition he talks about is his good friend bill campbell um he talks a lot about bill campbell as being a real sort of people person um and and he talks about this the fact that you know smart people don't work for people who um, don't hold their interests close to their heart. So, you know, if, if you know, really good people will will move on pretty quickly if they realise that this, you know, the manager they're working for isn't particularly interested in their own development. Um, and I think Bill Campbell's quote was something like, "Truly great leaders create an environment where the employees feel that the CEO cares more about the employees than herself." Um, and I know that I've, I mean, I've worked for various managers, in, you know, CEOs in the past, and. I don't think I've ever worked for a CEO that was more interested in, you know, the employees achieving things than they were about themselves or about the, you know, um, a selfish aspect to it. So it's a pretty compelling um, thought, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final attribute is is the ability to achieve the vision. And this is where he, he kind of introduces a guy called Andy Grove. I don't know if you've heard of Andy Grove. He's yeah. the Intel CEO. Absolutely. He is, yes. Yeah. So I hadn't really heard of him. It's one of those names where you sort of vaguely recognise. Um, and he was a guy, and, and the, the reason it matches him is because the ability to achieve the vision. He took Intel from you know a predominantly memory-focused business into the microprocessor business. And look at you know look what he did. It would be interesting to know if they'd stayed in memory, would they be where they are right now? I, I doubt it. So um, it's a great example of someone who had a vision and was able to actually achieve it. You know, was competent enough to to get the job done. Um, so I mean, there's no you know again, there's no manual for being a CEO. You have to kind of learn as you go. But what Ben's saying is that these attributes will you know they'll get you a long way if you can focus on these and, and grow these. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a bit of a whirlwind. Just a quick, like, key takeaways. Um, one is, you know, going back to it, it's a struggle. So running a company, building a company, it's, it's really hard. So, you know, you can't expect an easy ride. Um, keep your management debt on the radar. I think that's a really, really powerful concept. Um, 
the really good leaders, they'll make unpopular decisions today to, to keep the long-term vision of the company on track for tomorrow. And then the final one, which I think is so simple but often neglected, is just transparency in companies. You know, share problems, um, make it, you know, a cultural thing for people to, to share bad news so that everybody is aware and, and, and tries to fix it. Um, mm. And, yeah, I think that's probably... <laughs> a whirlwind tour of uh, the hard thing about hard things it sounds good so there's a couple of points that, um, i just wanted to make there so uh, the 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 andy grove one there was a story i heard recently where um when he was at intel and and they were doing the memory chips um and they had to make that massive change in strategy he was sitting in the room with his um his vp or his co-founder whoever it was i forgot his name and they basically said you know what would we do if we fired we got fired and two people came in to replace us what what decision would they take uh, with this kind of problem and they said well let's do it let's fire ourselves and let's literally say we're, we're firing ourselves and we're going to walk out the door and then we're going to come back in and be rehired and then we're going to start fresh you know to basically try and think um, in, in a very clean slate way and say look I know we've been here since day one and we're very emotionally attached to everything we're doing but but let's just clean the slate and what decision would we take um, uh, brand new basically what would we expect uh, our replacements to take what kind of decision right. and they did and they took the decision to move into the uh, the microprocessor huh. um, business which was obviously huge um, so yeah re- Andy Grove is um, is a pretty interesting guy actually yeah definitely worth reading some more about him but you know it's interesting how um, having read quite a few books um, about Silicon Valley and, and those companies uh, based in that area how many of them reference the same people you know Bill um, yeah Rose, it seems to be that way yeah. Bill Campbell Steve Jobs is, is in every single book now mm-hmm. and I just wonder if someone's ever going to write a book where they list 10 examples of people you've never really heard of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim Collins is a bit like that. He sometimes brings out uh, examples that you, you haven't heard very often. So, but, um, but it's good. So I really like the idea of this management debt concept because um, having been a, a developer for many years, the, the idea of technical debt was very, very much on my mind. And, mm. you know, a couple of times I've been in situations where we took, we took a pretty quick and dirty decision very early on. And years later, the pain was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas if we would have just taken a couple of months to do it properly, we would have saved ourselves so much pain later on down the road. Right. So yeah, I, I really like applying that really kind of well understood concept to the management field. Um, it yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So yeah, it's good. So okay. So um, all right. So good book. You highly recommend this one. I, I would definitely recommend it. I think the one thing I would say is that towards the end, it started to. I, I couldn't really relate to a lot of the stuff he was talking about. You know, he started to talk a lot about hiring executives hiring senior people um which you know isn't really relevant to what i'm doing but you know when i read for the first time i thought it was fairly hard to get through but once i started looking at my notes again i still thought there was really good stuff that you could you know you could pull out of that so there's something in it for everyone definitely yeah okay good i think i'll have to read that one pretty soon actually um so it's it's a good counterpoint to this uh the peter Thiel book which um I found really interesting. This is a slightly shorter book in length. It's about 224 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what's interesting about it is that Peter Thiel didn't actually write this book. It's actually written by a guy called Blake Masters. Uh, and if you want to, you can actually get all of the original write-up uh, online for free. But um, So what, what it was was, is at Stanford University, Peter Thiel was teaching um, a course on startups. Uh, to to the students there and he was coming and giving these lectures and this one guy was writing up all of the notes from these particular lectures and he was putting them on his website on blakemasters.com 
And I don't know how it worked out. I'm not sure what the, the story is there, but, but they obviously agreed to basically co-author a book together where they took all of Blake Masters notes. So it is Peter Thiel's content and it is his kind of ideas, but it's mm. compiled together by this, this student called Blake Masters. And, um, he he put it all together and then they sort of edited it, cut it down a little bit uh, and sort of focused it a little bit more. And then they produced this book called Zero to One. So so it's kind of co-authored by Peter Thiel, but it's it's his ideas, oh, I, I guess. I had no um, idea. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. It's quite entrepreneurial of this student to basically take all these incredibly in-depth notes and then uh, and then put them up on his website. Um, yeah, and I almost, I almost get the feeling that that's doing, taking on board some advice a lot of people talk about kind of outsourcing things. And I don't know whether there's an element of that, that he's kind of, you know, obviously his time is is probably tight. So he wants to do lots of things and, and maybe that was a way of, of achieving it, is, is bringing in some extra help, but obviously guiding it towards where he wanted to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know what the, how that ha- actually happened. I don't know if, um, you know, Blake Masters just contacted him and said, hey, I'm getting a lot of attention for my notes that I made of your, uh, your right, seminars. Yeah. You know, do you want to maybe do something? I don't know how mm. it worked, but but all of the notes are online and actually there's more chapters um, or more content on his website than there is in the book. So if you find the book really interesting, you can go and get um, everything, even more uh, okay. online. So, uh, so yeah, and I think it caused a big storm at the time. So when he was putting these, um, these uh, blog posts online with all of the content, he was getting thousands and thousands of hits. It kind of, it went viral a little bit. So maybe that's how Peter Thiel sort of got wind of it and thought, okay, mm. let's do something with this. So, so it's a really interesting book, and it's um, Peter Thiel is known as a bit of a, contra- a contrarian. You know, he likes to, uh, or I don't know if he does it on purpose, but he has opinions that are completely the opposite of. Um, uh, everybody else in the industry i guess and he seems to revel in that a little bit he's um he's also very uh he's quite a um I don't know, he rem- reminds me of robert mcnamara uh the ex-ford ceo and uh uh he was in the JFK administration. He's almost like a computer, a human, you know, computer, basically. He's very straightforward, deals very much in the facts, and uh, he doesn't seem to show a lot of emotion. So one of his questions that he poses to people that he's potentially going to hire is, uh, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And it's a deceptively difficult question. <laughs> and he, he gives examples of bad questions, bad answers. And he says, you know, some people give the obvious of things like, uh, you know, oh, I don't believe in religion or, you know, things like that. And he says that's that's not a good example of um, a good answer. It's, it's just too straightforward because you're always thinking about the present situation. And he's looking for somebody to give him an answer that's really about a very forward thinking idea. Uh, and they fundamentally disagree. And actually what he wants is people to disagree with him, you know, to have a challenge with him. Because it shows that these, these individuals, are, um, you know, sort of free-spirited they have their own opinions they, they believe in them and they're willing to kind of argue and that they're, they're not just trying to impress the interviewer basically um and i found that interesting because there was another question in the google book that i read recently by sergey when he's interviewing um, people he says could you teach me something complicated i don't know and that's a really tough question when you think about it especially when you're sitting there facing sergey brin who you know he's a smart guy he probably is well read probably knows a lot what can you teach this guy quickly that's complicated and i think that's um that's very difficult did he give any examples of what people did uh yeah eric smith the the author and the co-author jonathan rosenberg basically i can't remember exactly but jonathan was the guy being interviewed and he he was fumbling around going uh i don't know maybe i can teach you blah blah, blah. i don't know but eventually he came up with some um 
something really silly. I can't remember what it was. He, he tried to teach me about economics, but it just didn't work. Uh, it was boring and uh, or it was too easy. I don't know. And I think he, he came up with some kind of DIY thing or something. It was some, some kind of homemade thing. I don't know what it was, fixing cars or something like that. But, but the kind of answer they're looking for there is... Um, is particularly at Google, they're looking for somebody to show some passion about something in their outside right. life. So, you know, you know what? I can teach you how to launch a rocket up in the air or something. Mm. Let me tell you about it. I can teach you in 20 minutes how the basic works, the basic fundamentals work. And, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to tease out something that you, you have in your personal life or something really passionate you believe in. Uh, or maybe something you did at work, like, you know, one example is how you improve the Google search algorithm. That might be something you're deeply passionate about. And you can teach somebody about it in 20 minutes and just give the basics of how it works. Um, mm. So, but it's a deceptively hard question. The same with Peter Thiel, which is, you know, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I mean, that's a really hard question when you think about it. Um, yeah, but so, so, yeah, Peter Thiel is, um, he was the founder of or co-founder of PayPal. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in the late '90s, and he sold that um, to eBay for a couple of billion, I don't know, maybe two billion. And, and what's interesting about Peter Thiel is his original team that founded PayPal has gone on to to dominate um, yeah. some huge companies, absolutely amazing. So we look at the original team. You got Peter uh, Peter Thiel. You got Elon Musk. You know, who's famous for SpaceX and also yeah. Tesla Motors. So he's founded these two huge companies, that are making a huge difference to the world today. Uh, Reid Hoffman, who, who co-founded LinkedIn. Uh, Steve Chan, Chad Hurley, and, and Jawed uh, Kareem founded YouTube, who's mm. <laughs> then sold to Google for you know billions. Uh, Jeremy Stopperman and Russell Simmons founded Yelp. Uh, David Sachs co-founded Yammer. Um, and all seven of these companies that have been founded since then have gone on to be multi-billion dollar businesses. And Peter Thiel also founded um, a couple of things, but one of them is Palantir, which is... Um, uh, a multi-billion dollar company that, that helps people understand vast quantities of information. He does a lot of work for the government, for example, mm -hmm. um, and the secret services, I think. So uh, the impact that Peter Thiel and his PayPal mafia, as they're known, uh, has yeah. had is, is, really, <laughs> is really huge. So whatever this guy has to say is, um, is sort of worth listening to, I guess. So, so the title intrigued me. I wasn't really sure before I read this what zero to one meant. Um, but it's an interesting idea. So what he's saying is most companies invest in products, you know, new products or product updates that go from one to N. So they have something already. And what they're trying to do is just improve it. They're trying to find the next kind of iteration on that product. And he calls this incrementalism. And it's almost like a disease you know, for Peter Thiel. He thinks that our whole education system, our whole the whole way we kind of preach about business, it's all about incrementalism. It's about you know, little iterations. He says this is not what changes the future. The future is going from zero to one. It's the really hard stuff. It's starting from zero where you have no idea about a product you no idea how to solve this problem um, but you find a way and you go from mm. zero to one and then from that one you can increment fine but what we need are people particularly and companies specifically who are willing to take these challenges on to go from zero to one and there's tons so of examples so Sorry, go on. So I was going to say, so it's like a really famous example would be like the moon landing then. Yeah, was... I mean, that that's a huge one. You know, that's a really big zero to one. Um, yeah. And you remember that speech that JFK gave? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's incredible. Like, yeah. We're going to land men on the moon with, you know, materials that haven't been invented yet and systems of propulsions that we have no idea about. <laughs> you know, we don't know how the hell we're going to do it. We've got no experience, but we're going to do it. And right. that is a classic zero to one okay, example. Okay, yeah. But, you know, more practical stuff, I guess, is... Um, is, is Google, you know, I mean, the Google search engine is, is kind of 
um, going from zero to one. It, or it's it's a massive step forward. It's taking something that existed, but but reinventing it massively and improving on it hugely. You know, and uh, some bigger examples might be like Pythagoras, for example. This is the guy that figured out the you know the angles of the triangle. And and the thing that he says is that these secrets. Um, these secrets are out there. You know, landing on the moon sounds impossible, or it certainly did 200 years ago. Um, but, you know, it's a secret that needs to be discovered. There are ways of doing it. You just need to figure it out. And you think about Pythagoras, you know, prior to him, those secrets of the triangle were just out in the ether. Nobody had discovered them yet. Nobody had figured them out, or certainly not documented them. But it's Pythagoras who sat down and took that zero to one challenge and figured it out. You think about Isaac Newton. Uh, or Einstein, they were taking zero to one problems and they figured them out. Mm. And then from then, you know, once you've got that one, you can you can increment one to n so many times and do so many great things. So, you know, in some sense, you might think of Facebook um, as a zero to one. It, it kind of reinvented the way that we collaborate online, you know, the social networking idea. And since right. Facebook cracked that problem, if you like, um, Obviously, there were companies before that, you know, Friends Reunited and Friendster and all these, but they didn't quite work. But Facebook made it work. And then from there, the, you know, the N increments so many times, you end up with so many variations on the Facebook theme, and it kind of explodes. And what Peter Thiel was interested in, particularly as an investor now, is people that are willing to take these zero to one challenges on. I just saw a news item literally just yesterday. Um, I didn't read it all, but it was about um, this scientist who had quit her job and her PhD, actually. And is being funded by Peter Thiel and others, I think, to try and find a way to generate energy from air. And and this is just bonkers to me. But uh, yeah. obviously there's something to it. They've obviously got some idea how to do this. So you can generate energy just from the air around you. Um, yeah, and I know it sounds like wind farms, but it's not. It's different. It's compressed air and generating electricity. And it's a very strange concept, but um, wow. that's kind of going from zero to one. That's a big step forward. Okay. Uh, you know, Newton figuring out the laws of gravity is going from zero to one. And, and you could also think about companies like Airbnb and Uber. You know, Uber, for example, have completely reinvented the yeah. way we think about taxi services. You know, and up until yeah. Uber doing that, you would think um, you would think the taxi service. How do you improve it? Well, it's just incremental improvements, right? Mm. Make the car nicer. I don't know. Give taxi lanes priority or something like that. But Uber have come along and completely reinvented the idea, and it's disrupting everything. Um, and that's a zero to one company, basically. Okay. Uh, you know, and what he says is, um, he's basically saying monopolies are good. And this is an idea I've not heard anyone else say. Maybe I'm reading the wrong things, but I've not heard this before. So he says competition is terrible. You don't ever want competition. And he says we're taught through school and through university and PhDs, we're taught to to to, to strategize around competition. You think about Michael Porter's great book on competition and um, competitive strategy. And he's saying that's rubbish. Don't go and find trouble. Um, do something completely different where there is no competition, blue ocean, I guess, blue ocean strategy, but try to create a monopoly. And that's the goal. And he says this is something very interesting. There are two kinds of companies broadly. There are monopolies and there are companies that are in competition. And he said you can pretty much fit all companies into one of these two categories. But what's interesting is the way that the two types of companies present themselves. So monopolies um, are 
enjoy a very good um, sort of freedom, yeah, a very high amount of freedom because they basically have a monopoly over a particular function or a particular product. So what they do to present themselves is basically try as hard as they can to prove that they're not a monopoly. So Google is one of these, for example. So he says Google actually tries to tell the world that it's actually a tech company and it's investing in mobile and, you know, and driverless cars and, and glasses, you know, Google Glass and all this. So it tries to make itself out as this tech company and therefore has all this competition. It's competing against all these other companies, like on mobile, it's competing against Apple and Microsoft and, and all these other devices. Um, but in reality, Google is a monopoly. Make no mistake about it. He's saying Google is the monopoly for search. Ever since um, you know the early 2000s, it has completely dominated um, search, right? And that's how it makes all this money. So, you know, I don't know, it's 80% or plus 85% of the search market goes entirely to Google. So it is basically a monopoly. But he says what Google try to do is communicate that they're not, that they're embroiled in massive competition. So, you know, one example is that they, they often say they're an advertising company. And if you look at the size of the global advertising business, not just online, but everywhere, it's huge. And obviously Google occupies like less than a percent of that market. Um, so if you frame it in that sense, Google is not a monopoly. But he says the reason why they do this, obviously, is they don't want to attract attention from governments like Microsoft did, um, where Microsoft, you know, threatened to be broken up, basically, uh, and was sort of broken up. So they were a monopoly in the 90s, and they got, yeah. um, you know, sliced up. So he says, that's interesting. But now look at the other companies that aren't a monopoly, and they're actually stuck in competitive landscapes. What do they communicate? They relentlessly try to tell people that they are a monopoly. So they're trying to say, actually, we have no competitors, and what we do is completely different to everybody else, and we're unique and our product does something no one else does and of course it's complete rubbish everybody's the same and you know he, he gives some analogies of like restaurants for example so you've got like a, a block um, where there's kind of 10 restaurants and you get a new one pop up and what's the message right the message is we offer something completely different it's Asian yeah. fusion and you've never had anything like this before it's completely different to the, the burger thing down the road no it's not you're, a, you're in a competition with all the other food restaurants you know that's the thing mm. and he's saying it's quite interesting. So what you want actually are monopolies. And the reason why you want monopolies um, is that they have such high cash flow generation. They generate so much money through their monopoly that it allows them to innovate because it gives them space. If you're always competing against the other restaurant or the other nightclub or the, you know, the other product in your space, you don't have a lot of time to innovate. You're basically mm. just trying to fight off the competition and trying to use marketing to to spin your your offering um, to make it sound unique and that takes so much attention away from the core business of, of generating zero to one solutions so mm. he says actually companies like google are great because they've got so much money coming in from their monopoly that they can actually say you know what let's go and invest in something totally wacky like balloons that generate wi-fi for countries that don't have a good infrastructure um you know boats that carry out wi-fi um you know um, machines or whatever antennas so that you know we can basically deliver the internet to anywhere in the world or google glass or driverless cars they're, they're, they're investing all this money and stuff that is not their core business and he says the reason they can do that is because they're a monopoly if they if they were embroiled in really difficult competition um like a product manage a project management company for example they wouldn't be able to do these kind of things so monopolies are good and competition is extremely bad and what he's looking so, for sorry go ahead yeah. no sorry so i mean just interestingly so how does where does apple stand on that because they're kind of a monopoly but they've obviously got fierce competition i mean their their cash flows and you know the the opportunity they have to innovate is humongous i mean but are they a monopoly i mean would they be deemed 
Would that be right? Or? Yeah, he doesn't actually say Apple Monopoly, and that's one of the questions I was wondering myself, because he mentions Apple, but he never says they're an example. But I think he would say they probably are. Um, I think what Apple have done for Peter Thiel is they've managed to create a very unique... Um, they've almost created their own category. Yeah, So if you think about some of the products they generated, they created their own kind of Apple category where there was no competition. So if you look at something yeah. like the iPod... I mean, there were other products, but there weren't. There was no competition. Yeah. And they also did a couple of things that he mentions where um, it was a bit like zero to one. It, they took something that was existing already, true, but they completely transformed it. So when you think about the tablets, tablets were actually around 10 years ago. Yeah. But they sucked. They weren't very good. Like, <laughs> nobody wanted one, right? Um, yeah. And then Apple come out with the, the iPad and it's like, it's just unbelievable. You just can't believe what mm. they've done. And it's such a revolution that it really is, um, it's a huge step change. They've created this whole category that then suddenly everybody else tries to follow and tries to fill the void and tries to become competitors to Apple. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, Apple are kind of moving on to the next phase and uh, iterating again on uh, on their products as well. So, uh, so I think he would say Apple are, are kind of zero to one, um, yeah, a monopoly type company. Um, okay. Yeah, but he doesn't quite say it. So, so um, you know, one of the things he says is that all happy companies are different um, because each only happy only companies that have a monopoly are truly happy. You know, if you're in deep competitive strife, you're not a happy company. You don't have room to breathe, and everything's just agonizingly difficult. Whereas, no. uh, so basically, all competitive companies look the same, and all happy companies are different. And the reason why they're different, the fundamental difference here is that monopoly companies do one thing different to all the others, and that's that they solve a unique problem, and they solve it extremely well. So mm. when you think about Google, the reason why they're a monopoly is they cracked the search problem, yeah. and they did it so well that nobody else could compete. They managed to return results that were accurate, and they were super, super fast. So they were solving a problem that Yahoo and AltaVista and all these other companies were not really solving that well, and Google blew it out of the park. So... You know, these monopoly companies are fundamentally satisfied and happy because they've solved a very unique problem that nobody else has. Whereas all competitive companies are basically unhappy and embroiled in horrible situations. And he gives lots of examples about that. And he says, you know, like Oracle f was constantly fighting battles with competitors. You know, and there's lots of funny anecdotes about how it got so personal and they were putting billboards up, you know, that were just really ugly. And it was just, he's like, this stuff is just terrible. You know, it just doesn't lead anywhere. And, and the problem is once you're focused on that competitor, it opens up such a huge opportunity uh, for a third party to come along and basically innovate whilst you two are fighting it out. And he said Apple were a bit like that, you know, the, the kind of the Google versus Microsoft and, and all this stuff going on in the 2000s enabled Apple to kind of slip through the back door and basically have no competition at all in what they were doing, which is quite interesting. Um, so, 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 yeah, another, another example he gives is um, how monopoly companies have something very special about the future, and that's that they have a huge future cash flow. Um, whereas other companies don't have that. So you can project the kind of um, cash flow that they will, this company will have in 5, 10, 15 years, and it's enormous. So he says PayPal, the company he founded, and he a couple of years ago, um, many years ago, when he was selling it, he, he tried to work out what the projection of cash flow would be in 5, 10 years' time for PayPal. And he says basically um, PayPal will make its most money in 2020 onwards. So when you think about that as an investment, you know, we're still we're still five years away from the beginning of that, of where PayPal is going to make most of its money. It gives another analogy of the New York Times and Twitter. Um, 
So the New York Times has been a monopoly company. It's had a huge monopoly for many years, and it's been kind of one of the world's most popular newspapers. You know, whatever it said was, you know, read and listened to and was hugely valuable. So you compare um, the New York Times with Twitter, and when Twitter did its IPO um, back in 2013, two years ago, it was valued at $24 billion on its IPO day. And you compare that to the New York Times, and the thing is, how can that be? Because each company employs a few thousand people. Each company gives, um, you know, gives millions of people the ability to get news and updates. So essentially, they're very, very similar companies. They're not much bigger in size. But what's interesting is at the time of the IPO, Twitter was not even making any money, but the New York Times was, right? The New York Times was actually making $133 million in 2012, whilst Twitter was losing money. So how is it that Twitter is really worth $24 billion when it's not making any money? And a kind of competitive type company is, is making tons of money and is not worth anywhere near that. How is that possible? And he says, well, it's because of future projected cash flow. And that's that Twitter yeah. is now a monopoly and it will be for many I mean, years. Yeah. And it's going to make most of its money in five, 10 years time, not now. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that it's making bucket loads of um, losses right now. It just doesn't matter because in 10 years time, it's going to be making phenomenal profits. Well, you know, and let's wait and see. We don't know, but that's what he's saying. It's kind um, of a bit of a gamble, isn't it, I guess, as well? It is, but, you know, on the other side is the New York Times and he's saying, well, their monopoly is done. You know, it's over. And they're dying out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, now they're embroiled in unbelievable competition. It's ugly. They're going to have to downscale. It's, it's very, very difficult. So, so that's an interesting idea. Um, another interesting idea that really caught my attention um, was this idea of definite optimism. And this really gets to the heart of what Peter Thiel wants to talk about in this book. So, you know, when I, when I started reading this, what I was expecting was kind of a manual, a little bit like what you have with Ben Horowitz. Was, it was like a manual for managers or entrepreneurs of like, OK, I'm Peter Thiel. I've seen a whole ton of companies um, you know, succeed massively. You know, I invested in Facebook in the early days. He only invested half a million dollars in Facebook and got 10% of the company. And you think, wow, how much, what, what kind of a return is that? It's absolutely phenomenal. So, so I was expecting some kind of lessons from him, basically. Um, but it's yeah. not really like that. Actually, the heart of this book is really um, a plan for change, uh, a real forward-looking agenda for society as a whole. Hmm. And it, it comes out in one of the chapters where he talks about this thing called definite optimism. So he's got this two by two, if you can kind of imagine it. On the top is definite in, on the left and indefinite on the right. And on the left-hand side, he's got optimistic and pessimistic below. And what he says in this two by two is you can kind of map the way societies are working. So in the bottom left, you've got pessimistic, um, a definite pessimist. Um, an example of that would be China, right? So a China is, um, is pessimistic by nature. They kind of think that the future won't necessarily be better than it is today. Um, but they have definite plans, right? So they're, they're making plans. And one, one thing he says is they're basically copying the blueprint from the United States. They're doing everything the U.S. did 50, 60 years ago, investing massively in education, investing in railroads and transportation and infrastructure and, and, and you know, building this kind of massive infrastructure for business um, and for society. But they're pessimists at the same time. Um, they They kind of don't believe that actually they will... Um, create a huge middle class uh, for, you know, for the majority of the population. Uh, whereas on the right of that, so you have pessimistic indefinites. So people that um, are pessimists, but forever, they have no plans. And the example uh, that he gives is Europe, 
and he says basically Europe we're all pessimistic over here in, in Europe because um, we have the European Union that doesn't seem to be doing anything doesn't seem to make any great decisions we've got a central bank over here in the Europe that no one believes in it makes a mess of everything the government in Brussels is just a complete disaster and we have no confidence in it and he said basically what European Union is like is just kicking a can down the street and just hoping for the best and, <laughs> and no one believes it's going to work and this is this is quite hard to take as a, as a UK person because I think he's kind of right actually i think the uk wishes it was different but you know we are a state in this european union that is is kind of behaving like that and it's a little bit unfortunate um so so then let's go to the top half of the the two by two and look at the optimists and if you look at the indefinite optimists this is the us from 1982 to today Uh, well let's look at the opposite let's look at the definite optimists so in the 1950s after world war ii the u.s entered this kind of golden period like the baby boomers um and, and this is where from 1950s to 1960s where the u.s kind of had all these amazing plans it basically said we're going to go to the moon we're going to invest in university education we're going to get everyone into university we're going to invest massively in shipping lanes and you know control of the sea and we're going to invest mm. in railroads and this was a huge thing because what the u.s was saying is we feel good about the future we feel like there's you know a positive that the future is going to be better all of the time so every generation is going to get better and better and better and not only that we're going to make definite plans so we're going to send people to the moon we're going to send out probes to the end of um, you know the galaxy and they're making all these kind of definitive plans for things for the future and what he's saying is that since um since roughly 1982 uh, and he doesn't say why 1982 but uh, you know whatever let's take his word for it that that's kind of the cutoff point where the u.s changed from being definite to indefinite and now the problem the u.s has got is it's a very optimistic country still it still believes that the future could be better but it has no idea how to make it better Mm. so it's lost its way um and one of the one of the ways you can see this manifest itself is that um the government since 1982 rather than taking on complex problems like landing you know humans on different planets for example rather than taking on those huge challenges it's basically been doing 40 years of of insurance basically it's been an insurance institution and it's been giving more on medicare and you know supporting individuals with social security and all these other kind of like transfer of money programs you know so it's focusing so much on how to how to provide care for people rather than you know how can we get off this planet and and move to mars or something Mm. crazy like that so he said you know we have a real problem in the u.s today that we're stuck in this indefinite loop although we still want to make great plans for the future nobody knows how to do it and and this is the heart of the book, actually, is that, um, oh, and one interesting stat on that is that he says it's no surprise that entitlement spending has eclipsed discretionary spending every year since 1975. So obviously discretionary spending is stuff like, you know, NASA and, you know, uh, the nuclear bomb or these, these really audacious yeah. programs, right? So since 1975, this something has really changed in the way that the u.s behaves and that's that's something i've not heard put in that way before and i thought that was truly very interesting so he says okay we've got this great problem um how do we change it and he genuinely believes um that going into politics you can't do anything you know so in the old days maybe being a politician you could do something and certainly if you look back you know, many years, if you're a philosopher, you could do a huge amount. You think about the impact that someone like Aristotle or Plato or Mm. um, Socrates had on the world. It was enormous. You know, what these guys said, what the ideas that these guys channeled to people changed the world. And even more recently, if you look at someone like Karl Marx or Rene Descartes, right, these guys changed the way people think, Um, particularly Karl Marx. 
but you can't do that anymore. If you're a philosopher today, it doesn't mean anything. You know, you're not going to change anybody's opinion. And and if you're a politician, you know, again, it's it's not going to change anything. So what's the most effective strategy for making social change today? And he says it is startups. It really is the biggest vehicle you can find to make a huge change. You know, he gives all these examples of how, you know, Elon Musk, for example, is doing SpaceX. So instead of NASA trying to get us to Mars, Elon Musk is saying he's going to get us Mm. to Mars by 2026. And this is a guy that made all his money from PayPal originally, right? So it's startups. So he's saying the importance of startups cannot be underestimated. It's basically the vehicle for us changing um, into a definite optimist society. Um, and, and that's really radical, I think. And that's why this book for me is much more than just like a handbook for entrepreneurs. It's really a, it's almost a work of philosophy in a way. Um, and I mean, does he does he talk about the, you know, obviously the dot com sort of bust? Does he talk about that knocking things back at all, like having an impact on this optimism as well from a technology perspective? He didn't really say that, but he did say it was a difficult time. He was obviously part of that. He he had PayPal going. Yeah. Um, when the dot-com bust. And he said it was absolutely crazy what was going on. He's got one example where um, they were trying to raise some money because they were they were running out. And somehow he got an email or contact from... And this was this was before the everything went bust, right? So he got an email from a, some company in South Korea who basically said, we want to invest in PayPal. And he was like, okay, that's great. And they literally wired him the money. They wired him $5 wow. million. Dollars. <laughs> And then everything went wrong, like literally a few months later. And he couldn't even figure out how to get the money back to these guys. And he doesn't say what he did with the money, but it was so crazy that the guys literally transferred the money without even signing a contract. He couldn't give them the money back. It was just crazy. So he said, you know, this this wow. whole thing in, in 1998 was, uh, 99, 2000, was just absolutely bonkers. And, and one of the reasons why it was so crazy is people were not thinking about first principles. They weren't thinking about what is the problem this company is actually trying to solve and and one of the benefits of PayPal is that um, it wasn't just a dot-com name. It was actually yeah. trying to do something very interesting, right. which was allow people to send money just via email, you know, to do, do money transfers online very easily, really without a bank involved. And that obviously transformed the way uh, eBay worked, for example. So I don't know if you know, but PayPal originally started as, as a, a way for people with Palm Pilots to transfer money to each other. Oh, really? So no, I didn't a, know that. Yeah, so it was a really niche market. Um, and then he bridged out, you know, because it, it, that market wasn't big enough, as it turns out, funnily enough. Um, they branched out to eBay, and, and then, of course, it made eBay take off because, you know, you could, you suddenly didn't yeah, have to do checks. And, yeah, I mean, prior to that, people were sending each other checks and you had to cash the check and it just, you know, the whole process was was pretty ugly. But now you could do it with PayPal. So, um, and, and it really did change things. I think, you know, looking back to that time, it was completely radical. It was something no one was doing. but And it was a difficult time. And he talks about that a lot in the book about, you know, it was, it was really difficult. But mm, obviously, um, you know, it happened very quickly. So once people really caught onto the idea and they found their kind of niche market. And one thing he talks about that I found interesting is that um, don't start with a big market. Never go into a market that already has lots of consumers there because all you're doing is going into a competitive landscape. Yeah. So, mm. and, and the reason why I like this idea is because I read um, Jeffrey Moore's book, uh, Crossing the Chasm. And one of the biggest ideas he talks about there is the first thing you've got to do with new technology is find a niche, find a very specific set of users and delight them completely. And that's why a startup mm. can do that because, you know, startup only has a few amount of people, low cost. You can go out and find a very small market 
and dominate that very small piece and then once you get those people extremely happy and they become references and they talk about you then bridge over into a bigger market and kind of start to dominate that right. uh, and that's a really interesting idea um it's very li- very closely linked with kevin kelly's a thousand true fans that a thousand way, true fans it? that's right yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and this is something Peter Thiel says, this is why MBA types never create great startups or very rarely. And that's because when you get taught in the MBA way, you're basically taught to go and find existing markets that have a proven right. size and a proven scale and then go and find a competitive strategy to outdo everybody. And he says that's mm. why startups are just so much more effective because they don't think like that. They basically create a problem to a little a, little, a solution to a little problem and then they find a couple of people that are really delighted by it and then it get, yeah. you know it spawns and it goes quite quickly uh, and then it becomes massive so pretty interesting mm. so so he says okay startups are fundamentally the way that we can change society which is an ambitious ambitious idea and he says if you're gonna gonna create a startup and obviously he sees a lot of startups you know he's an investor he says you've got to find the startups that do four things and the key is the first one. And the, and the first one is proprietary te- technology. He says you need to find a company that is solving something with a piece of technology that is completely unique. So like Google search engine algorithm is exactly that. Um, PayPal's technology yeah. was exactly that. And if he doesn't find that in a company that he's investing in, if he doesn't see something that's very special about the technology, he doesn't believe it's going to work. You have to have a technical solution that is solving something very, very difficult. And then there are three others. And I think these three are less important, but, you know, they're part of the four. And the second one is network effects. So you need to be able to um, very quickly allow this thing to scale, um, you know, to a big network. So Facebook was one. But he says, you know, you think about Mark Zuckerberg. He wasn't trying to get Facebook, the original Facebook, to every user on the planet. That was not the Mm. strategy. The strategy was to get all his friends in college onto Facebook. So it was a very small niche, right? Um, but he built it in a certain way that he could scale it very easily. So after getting the Harvard people to sign up, he could then go to more universities and get them to sign up. And the benefit of network effects is that the more people you have, the more valuable the product becomes. So obviously if Facebook gets a million users, it suddenly becomes more useful as a product because you learn more about what the users are doing. Mm. There's more people to connect to. There's more information on there. It becomes a more valuable tool. So he's saying, always think, does this product have network effects? You know, the more people start using it, does it become exponentially more valuable uh, as a tool? And then the third one is very similar, which is economies of scale. So again, you know, does it become cheaper for you the more you sell of this thing or the more users mm. you get on there? And software is a classic example of that uh, yeah. because if you write a product once and you don't have to customize it, then the cost of you giving it to, to customer number N is basically zero. So, you know, you've put all that effort up, up front. And this is why he says, you know, um, a lot of tech companies lose enorm- uh, enormous amounts of money for the first few years because they have to invest in getting that product right and they're going to keep making losses. But once they get it right, the cost to then distribute that product to you know millions of users is, is mm. basically zero. It's basically nothing. Uh, and that's economies of scale. And he, he says the opposite of that, of course, is a service business. So, you know, like running a restaurant or a consultancy that's a very difficult business to scale. There are no economies of scale because you've just got to add more people to the process to make it scale. Um, yeah. And that's a difficult business for him. So, and, and finally, the last one is branding. And he says, well, of course, you know, you always own your own branding. So you've got to make it um, special. And, you know, of course, he gives Apple. Apple's a classic example of this, how they, you know, the branding itself is so fundamental 
um, to what Apple is. It's, it's you buy Apple regardless of even what the product is sometimes. You know, you just kind of, it's the identity that Apple have. Mm. But he says you have to be really careful with a brand. Does the brand have substance behind it or is it just pure surface? And he said when you look at Apple, it's a really good example of a, a company that has incredible branding but has huge substance behind it. Um, whereas there are many, many companies that have, you know, they sound really great, but actually the product behind it is not consistently great. And I would say in today's today's world, Microsoft is one of those. It has Mm. actually quite a strong identity, a strong brand, but sometimes the products are terrible. You think about Windows Vista, it was just an absolute disaster. Um, And even Windows 8, I think. So these are the four four pillars, if you like, of a a highly successful startup or, or one that I guess Peter Thiel would be interested in investing in. Um, but then he has these things and I don't know if we need to go through all of these but he has something called seven questions and these questions are really questions all companies should ask of themselves to see if they're really um, they're really kind of generating monopoly situation for themselves and he he wraps this around um a whole chapter which is about clean tech so he talks about all these companies that are talking about solar and wind farms and all these new clean tech energy companies that came out several years ago and he says really it's an absolute disaster what's happened it's been one of the worst sort of social entrepreneurial projects ever so tons of investors put lots of money into this and he says it's just not worked and in fact there's only one company um, certainly that he cites that has come out of this clean tech thing um, a success and that would be Tesla Motors you know a company that's trying to get rid of petrol cars and he says they that company answers all seven of these critical questions where as he looks at I think it's Solandra uh, which was a whole scandal where you know Barack Obama was kind of involved in they invested a lot of money the US government into this and it was it was a complete disaster and um <clears throat> Yeah, so so let's just take a look at these seven questions just to see what he's talking about. So the first one is, again, the engineering question. Um, does this company have some kind of proprietary technology that is, and this is critical, that is an order of magnitude better than its nearest substitute? And what he's talking about is it must be something like 10%, 10 times, sorry, 10 times better than the nearest um, equivalent. And that's one example where he talks about Google. Google was 10 times better than any other search engine that was around. Mm-hmm. You know, Tesla Motors is 10 times better than any other electric car <clears throat> on the market, for example. So, so that's question number one. And, and that's a tough one to ask yourself when you're in a company. Are you really 10 times better than your nearest competitor? What do you have that is unique? And he says the only way to really be 10 times better is to have some kind of proprietary technology um, that is an order of magnitude better. So I think that's one of the biggest ones. And the second one is the timing question. And, and that's that, are you at the right time um, for this for this market? You know, And, and the, the solar energy one is a big question. Was it the right time uh, for clean tech um, industries to really be approaching this? And um, I don't know, interesting question, but... Uh, it's a difficult one to judge that. I know. I, I think you know Peter Thiel puts that as kind of a fundamental question. But how do you ever know what the right time is? You never mm. really know. I don't know if Facebook would have said that it was the right time when they launched. Um, and then the third question. There's a lot of luck involved in it's that, a lot really, of luck, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you never know timing. And I think you can always look at timing after the fact, but you can never really look at it before the fact. It's extremely difficult. But then he talks about the monopoly question. So. Um, you know, is your uniqueness so special that it could create a monopoly in the future? Fair enough, and we've talked about that. Then it's the people question, and that's the, do you really have the right kind of people involved? And, and one big lesson he got um, from the cleantech mess uh, was it was always funny how all of the companies that came to him for investment, well, the people there were always wearing suits. And he said, you know, I don't trust any technology company 
where all the people that come to me to, to pitch are wearing suits. I just don't trust it. He said, technology companies, people wear T-shirts and jeans and shorts and, and sandals, right? And he <laughs> said, if you go and look at the people that work for Tesla Motors, they don't wear suits. Elon Musk doesn't wear a suit. You know, he's wearing a T-shirt, you know? And it, so he basically instituted a rule in his founders fund company that says they don't invest in people where everyone wears suits. It's just dumb. <laughs> and he said, he's really sorry. He may miss a few good companies, but... In general, the rule works, you know, mm. uh, and that's quite an interesting one. So make sure you have the right the right kind of people. And he said yeah. a lot of a lot of the the clean tech companies were basically sales organizations. They were they were not really technology companies. They were just kind of pitching. They were very good at pitching to government and saying, you know, give us lots of money, you know, government bursaries, and we'll we'll invest in all this great technology and make it work. And it was all a sham, really. That was one of the biggest problems with that. It was all a complete <laughs> sham. And he he in a way he saw through that and said, this is just this is bullshit, frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to see some technology people that know what they're talking about. So, and then the next question is the distribution question, which is interesting because kind of counter to what he, he just said there is that sales is actually incredibly important. And he starts off a whole chapter talking about this, that a lot of technology people forget or almost discount the value of salespeople. But he says, you cannot have a great product without people that sell it. And whether that's like a Richard Branson who's a figurehead, or even talks about someone like Lady Gaga, you know, who is who is a great salesperson and a very unique founder of a huge empire that's worth millions or billions. Um, you know, you have to have people that are charismatic and can sell the product and they're not just technical nerds, basically. So you have to know that you can sell this, you can get the right people to sell it for you and that you have a good distribution channel for this as well. Um, he said it's impossible for a great company um, to sell itself without good salespeople. But the converse is not true. You can actually sell a crap company with very good salespeople and a good distribution channel, which is interesting. And then the durability question is another one, which is that um, will this solution uh, be durable? You know, so the, the fracking is an interesting one. So you look at the oil industry. And one of the things that the clean tech industry didn't consider is is the rise of fracking. So they thought that the oil depletion was done, basically. So there, there had to be another alternative to oil. But actually, fracking comes along and, and sort of boosts the oil industry massively. And then clean tech didn't really figure on that that particular problem. So um, then they really suffered because of that, because fracking took off and the oil industry was sort of almost a boom again, in a way. So the question is, do you have durability? Um, you know, can you ride the storm, uh, if you like? And then the final question is, and I think it's very similar to the first one, it's called the secret question. And that's what secret are you solving? You know, what's the kind of hidden problem here that you're actually tackling? Um, And what are the specific reasons for success that other people don't see? And this goes back to that very first question about, you know, tell me something you disagree with um, that everyone else thinks is Mm. is whatever. Uh, You know, what is the thing that you're fundamentally doing? And he, he says all great startups are like a conspiracy to change the world. And he said, once you bring someone into that, you're, they're co-conspirators with you. All great startups are trying to do something that fundamentally changes the way we operate or the way we work, like Uber, for example, um, or Airbnb. I think Airbnb is actually the seventh biggest hotel chain in the world now in terms of revenue. And it doesn't even own a single hotel. Mm. And you think about that, that is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, and you can imagine that that is actually a conspiracy to change the way the hotel yeah. industry works. It's, it's huge. And to let people in on that is, is letting people in on a special secret. that You're going to fundamentally look at this problem in a different way. So he says, can you answer all seven of those? And he, he goes through a whole bunch of clean tech companies and biotech companies as well, actually, that could not answer those seven questions properly. But 
Tesla Motors probably could, Elon Musk company. So, so anyway, I think that's kind of drawing it to a close. That's really a broad overview of this book. But it's a fascinating book. And one of the reasons mm. why I like it is it's short, quite easy to read. And it does feel a little bit like um, lecture notes. It does feel like you've been sitting there listening to Peter Thiel um, give a lecture. But it's so dense. There is no waffle. There's nothing. It's, everything is to the point. And it's like, here are my lessons. Here's what I believe. And I don't apologize. So everything is very matter of fact and has that kind of, um, it sounds like he talks, which is very, mm. very, um, <laughs> very machine-like, very methodical. Uh, great book. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Lots of good lessons. And I think, you know, when you think about who this book would be for, um, I think there are two two categories, I guess. And, and one is that it would be great for people that, are already waiting to start something, you know, kind of inspired by this and say, you know what, I'm going to go out and take those those seven questions and try and find a secret that I can solve. And and one of the things he says in there, I forgot to mention actually, is that a lot of people believe that the world is so flat now and there's so much talent out there that um, you don't believe you can come up with a solution to a, a problem that someone else hasn't already done. You think that it's all done, right? And he says um, one of the reasons why we're put off is things like geography, that we've now discovered the whole planet, right? And we started to discover mm. the whole um, solar system. So we feel like everything is known now. There's nothing more to explore. Uh, and, you know, and we assume that, well, there's some kind of problem. Yeah, but I'm sure there's somebody smarter than me in the world that will solve that. And he's saying, you know, you've got to stop thinking like that. There really isn't. And the opportunity for you to go out and solve a problem that no one else has yet is is enormous. Um you know, but just make sure you're answering these seven questions as the best you can and being honest with yourself. Are you really solving a problem um, that exists and that people care about? Um, so so I think it would inspire people massively that are already thinking about this. And I think as a general read, it's just good fun. Um, it was just very interesting. I particularly like the stuff about um, the uh, the definite optimists or the uh, and the indefinite pessimists in terms of Europe as well. It was just a, it was just a good framework for thinking about how the world is thinking right now, uh, and very relevant. So so yeah, hugely enjoyed this book. Hugely enjoyed it. I think the um, the bit you just mentioned at the end about the world is flat and that everything's kind of been done that can be done. Um, it's interesting because that's been applied to so many things. I I remember I don't remember the dates, but reading about that from a scientific a scientific perspective, where a lot of scientists, you know, in the early days, you know, hundreds of years ago, perceived that everything that was could be done had you know had been done. You know, anything any kind of medical breakthrough had already been done, so there was kind of no point in doing it. And a lot of really like incredibly intelligent people just gave up because they thought that it had already been done, which was crazy because this was even like you know to go hundreds of years ago um, before some massive breakthroughs have come come in. So it kind of goes to show that it's something that people have obviously been doing for a long, long time, um, and that you know people really need to change their mindset because there's always opportunity. Yeah, and there's a quote that I've got on my fridge actually, but I can't see it right now, from um, Arthur Schopenhauer, the the philosopher. And he he's this is obviously a long time ago, but he said, and I can't quite remember it, but it was the, the trick is not to see something brand new. The trick is to see something which everybody else sees already, but in a different way. And I'm paraphrasing uh-huh. a little bit, but yeah, you know, he was yeah. saying, you know, you've got to take something sense. that exists and just see it differently to how everyone else sees mm. it. And I think that's actually the heart of what Peter Thiel was saying. You look at some of the examples like. Um, 
you know, Uber and Airbnb again, they've taken something that you just assumed couldn't be innovated that much, you know, the, a taxi service or the hotel chains, and they've completely reimagined the way that it works. And they haven't really mm. invented a new system, a new way of, of doing it, but they've just invented, well, it is a new way of doing it, but, but they've completely reimagined the way that you think about these, um, these industries. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's hugely powerful. And I think what Peter Thiel is almost impo- sort of, begging people to do is to say look if you've got the energy and, and kind of smarts about you um, to tackle these problems think about it and what existing systems are there today that you can completely reimagine and do differently and that's where you can create monopolies yeah yeah absolutely i guess to to use the cliche of apple once again is that and that's, it's such a shame because there's such a good example really you just have to keep using them but you think about the mp3 player you know, there were MP3 players yeah, a lot. before yeah, the iPod came along, and it's ridiculous. You know, why didn't it take off? And one of the saddest tragedies of it was Sony, because Sony actually had all of the components that Apple needed, right? They had everything in one company to produce the iPod. And in fact, what was so funny about it is that Sony actually produced a whole bunch of the, the, the materials and, and the pieces for the iPod and they just didn't realise what was happening so I think the, ba- the battery itself which had to be super slim and had to fit in the back of there and last for ages you know Apple actually um, got Sony as the supplier to produce that battery I think uh, and it's crazy it's like Apple took an existing thing that wasn't working good enough although nobody knew that right nobody knew it wasn't working good enough and completely reinvented it and I think that's um, it's a huge opportunity for people today to do that quickly and cheaply as well yeah I like that it's- interesting right so so to sum it up i think um two very very worthwhile reads i would say yeah definitely yeah all right good so what are we reading next time so next time we're going to be looking at design uh i guess more specifically we'll be looking at things like website web application design um but i'm sure we'll be covering you know sort of general principles of good design as well so it should be pretty cool so design, I think that's a great topic. Uh, looking forward to reading about it. Talk about it next time. Thanks a lot for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more book reviews and discussion, plus all the notes from the show, check out plugthevoid.com.